Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, Early decisions, they're coming out. Maybe you've already gotten your early decision, and I hope everyone who's listening who applied in an early decision round got great news. But if you were deferred, you want to check out the show we did on November 14th in our archives um, because we covered the next steps and how to handle it if you were deferred. So check that out. Um, So today's show, we're going to be discussing colleges that change lives and telling you a little bit more about those and also how to have the talk. And maybe it's not the talk you're thinking about, but the talk about what you can afford for college. So we find that a lot of families wait until a little too late in the process to talk about that. And so we have some suggestions for you today. But before we get to that, I'm super excited to welcome a friend of mine who is a former admissions officer. He worked at both NYU and Lehigh. And he's currently director of college counseling at St. Andrews School in Delaware. And he is coming to talk to us again about the biggest myths. So we talked about some of these back in September on our September 19th show. But there are so many of them that we um, are making it a series. And Jason is our next guest. So I'd like to welcome Jason Hansel to the show. Hi, Jason. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I'm excited as always to talk about myths because you and I and the work that we do seem to tackle these on a fairly regular basis, if not daily. Um, And I'm not sure that we're ever going to eradicate them, but we can at least talk about them and uh, tell our listeners um, the real deal. So the first one I was hoping we could talk about was what you referred to brilliantly yesterday as the magical essay. So what is the myth of the magical essay? Yeah, so I think it's, it's, it's pro- the essay is probably the part of the application that induces the most anxiety, I think, amongst students and, and parents, too. And I think um, it, it's partially because it's just sort of, it's so, it's so um, subjective in so many ways. And so I mm-hmm. think that there's this, there's, there becomes this myth that somehow if you write the perfect essay and say the perfect, write the perfect words, it's going to somehow magically be the ticket to admission. And I think that is, it is a myth. And I do worry sometimes that I think colleges can sometimes un, unintentionally, um, you know, sort of enforce this myth in some ways. Cause I mm-hmm. think when you go to college um, admission, you know, go to college admissions information sessions and they, they spend a lot of time talking about the essay and all the, all the ways and all the ways that the essay is, is important. And while I do think it is important, I've, I've rarely in my experience, both on the college side and even working on the high school side now, have seen, have seen an essay make such a monumental difference in the process. Right. And, you know, I think there's, there are a couple of ways too that people think about the essay as being magical. I know that I have students who will think that, well, I know that I'm not really competitive or my grades aren't exactly what they were looking for, but I've written this essay and it's so good. I think it's going to help. And have you ever seen a kid get into a school where they didn't have the basics, but the essay was so brilliant that they were like, I got to overlook it. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that's a great that's a great point. No, I've never ever seen that. And again, I've, I've been doing this for longer than I care to mention, but it's been over 25 years of being you know having done college counseling and admissions, and I've never heard of a story or a legend or a myth of anyone getting into a college because of a an absolutely brilliant essay. That that as as you point out, Beth. I mean, I think that the foundation has to be there. The grades have to be there. The core, the the strength of the curriculum has to be there. Um, if a, if a school requires subject, um, standardized testing, the, the scores have to be there. And, you know, the essay can be, you know, a nice, um, you know, little part of that process, but it's never the, the reason, uh, or at least I've never heard of it being a reason the student got in or didn't get in because of an essay. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. And I think if you put in the time and the effort and the essay is a reasonably well done piece of writing, and I would define that as... You know, I always used to tell students when I was working at Penn, but I and I also talk about it now, is that most students are not writing pieces that could be published in the New Yorker tomorrow. In fact, I can really only think of maybe two or three essays in my entire career, and I haven't been doing it quite as long as you, but close. Um, You're younger than me. I'll, I'll admit it. <laughs> but that work. <laughs> That you know that that were so good that I thought, wow, this is this student is a writer, right? Most people are not writers, and right. most colleges don't expect it to be an unbelievably brilliant piece of writing. They just want to learn something important about you, and then they're moving on to to other parts of the application. So, I think our wish here with this one is just that people would be a little less stressed about this being perfect. And a little bit more realistic about, hey, I'm going to give it my best effort. I'm going to put in the time and I'm going to make sure it's not something I just sat down yesterday, jotted down and and sent off. But, um, you know, so you want to edit it and you want to go through a couple of drafts, but it still doesn't have to be perfect. And even if it is, it's not necessarily going to be the ticket in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, right. You want to put the effort in and do the work and... um, but I also point out, you know, I like to point out to kids that, you know, these aren't um, professional writers reading your, your essays either. It's not, it's not mm-hmm. as if, um, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell or professional writers are actually reading these essays. These are admissions officers, and they're, you know, they're obviously intelligent, and they're college graduates, but, but they're not reading it for, um, like an English teacher might read it or a professional writer might read it. So, um, you know, as you said, I think it's, it's all about telling your story and, and, and having the reader walk away, getting to know you a little bit better and less about it being the perfect essay. So. Right. Okay. Perfect. So hopefully they're going to take that. Our listeners will take that away and share that with everyone who they talk to since that seems <laughs> to happen. With these books. All right. Next one that we were talking about was the idea of the, um, alumni interview and and its importance and probably good to point out that alumni interviews are most common at the most selective levels uh, which of course comes with its own set of challenges so what are your thoughts about how important the alumni interview actually is and how important you find it that students feel that it is that's a great great question and it is probably one of my greatest frustrations uh, is this uh, the alumni interview at the, the highly selective schools, um, especially when they say, well, it's actually optional. We can't guarantee that you'll get an interview. And so um, it, it, there is this myth, another, another kind of myth around this, that somehow if I could just get in front of someone um, and tell my, share my story, that this is going to be a difference maker. And 
It was interesting. I was talking to an alum yesterday of a very selective school who happened to have been visiting St. Andrews, and he was asking me about alumni interviews, and he said, well, don't they just do it to, to get um, to get the alum engaged and be involved in the school. It's not less about the admissions process, but more about engaging the alumni. And I, I think that's a good point. I think um, colleges like to keep their alum and, alums engaged. I think this is mm-hmm. a way they can do that. But in my experience, I don't think, and this is you know feedback from alums themselves to do these interviews, I don't think these alumni interviews have a lot of weight in the process. And so um, they cause a lot of stress. Um, it takes a lot of time and energy for kids to arrange for these. And in the end, I don't, you know, again, my experience has been um, that they don't hold a lot of weight in the actual admissions process. Yeah. And and as a former alumni interviewer who basically used to uh, interview for my alma mater as a way to stay engaged, <laughs> and then have been on the other side where I dealt with alumni volunteers, I think that you're, the person you were talking to the other day is exactly right. I also think it is an opportunity because... Um, kids and parents feel so strongly, but they need to meet me. How can they possibly know anything about me just by reading my file? Right. And and I don't disagree, but I the key element here is that they're never going to get to know you, right? This is not a process mm-hmm. designed for the admissions office to know you the same way that your friends and your family and your teachers know you because it's not possible to do that through Mm -hmm. this process. But something about having an opportunity to meet someone face-to-face feels like, well, they really got to know me. But yeah, um, I know that my write-ups were, you know, that I tried to do my best, but I'm writing a paragraph or two to my alma mater when I used to do these about the student. And when I was on the receiving end of these at Penn, um, you know, it was like, you, you just couldn't take one... 20 to 40 minute conversation and the notes from that from someone who you don't really know, right? You don't really know the alum either um, for everything that's in the file, right? It just, unless the student walked in and was deeply inappropriate in some way, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it was, I've never seen it or did something dumb like say, well, I'm applying to Penn because my parents want me to, but I really don't want to go there. Uh, right. That would be, you know, one of the only things you could do, I think, that would really negatively impact your in- admissions chances, at least in my experience. Yeah, I agree. I think it's more likely that side of it, uh, almost a negative, if, if someone did something inappropriate, as opposed to the, the interview where it really, you wow them so much that, it's, that it makes the difference. As you, say, as you said, the, the alums, there's so many alums who do this. Um, they, they, they don't necessarily know the admissions folks. And, you know, we also all have our own biases, you know, um, mm-hmm. a, about certain, you know, sometimes physical characteristics, sometimes just sort of connecting about a particular activity. And so I, I just don't think that they are all that valuable, you know, unless it's, you know, again, if it, we're talking about a different type of school, if it's an actual admissions officer interview, I think that's a different scenario. But I think alumni interviews are another sort of area of, um, that cause a lot of stress, undue stress. Right, exactly. With the with the idea being that they're really just not as important as you think they are. Um, exactly. And do them if you get it. And if you, and I think the other another myth that I see, and you might see this as well, is when the students don't get the interview, mm-hmm. uh, they think that that's a reflection on the school's interest in them. When really, they could have just assigned the interview to an alum who's a slacker and just never followed through, or they didn't have an alum near you, or they had too many students to interview and not enough alumni volunteers to go around. 
Absolutely. In fact, I just had a student in my office who did not get a, an alumni uh, interview at a particular highly selective and was convinced it was because his, his record wasn't strong enough. And I assured him that was not the reason. Um, um, his record might not be strong enough, but it's not, <laughs> not the reason he didn't get the <laughs> alumni interview. Right, exactly. He may not get in. And in his mind, he may continue to equate, well, I didn't get an interview and therefore I didn't get in. But it was probably the fact that the record is not quite strong enough, which is why he won't get in. Exactly. Uh, anyway. All right. Um, okay, so then one more myth that we, and, and I think it kind of goes along with the um, alumni interviews piece, and is the whole idea of recommendation letters from alums, or quite frankly, just lots of extra recommendation letters. And and what's your experience with the impact that a, a recommendation letter from an alum has on an application? Yeah, again, I think this is one that causes so much extra work and, and anxiety around this process. And I wish, I wish that colleges would be more, and, and as we, we've discussed, I mean, some colleges are restrictive on the number of recommendations they receive, but I wish more schools would just would sort of have a, a really strict cutoff. But um, I find that alumni recommendations, again, in most instances, are not going to have an impact at all. As you can imagine, schools have you know a limited amount of time to read your, your profile. Your, they want to see your academic record. They want to re- hear from your teachers who are working with you. If you if you're fortunate enough to go to a school where those counselor you know has a relationship with you, they want to hear from your counselor. Um, but the idea that adding more recommendations, particularly from alums um, who may not know you that well, um, it's just not going to be useful. And and to be quite frank, I think um, a lot of times they're not even read. I think they're they're maybe yep. given a quick glance and then moving we'll, we'll move on from those pretty quickly. So. Um, I, I think you know, you know, given the amount of time that schools have to read these that your application, that less is more, and I would not exceed the um, you know the, the requirement that they ask for. Yeah, I agree. I, my rule for students is I, I generally suggest if you absolutely have someone who you think is going to add something different, maybe mm-hmm. one additional letter. That's it, though, not more than one. And right. you know, you, you and I have both we've worked at different schools and probably had different um, amounts of time to get through applications. I mean, when I was at Penn, I read I had about 15 minutes to read each application. And I'm guessing at NYU, you probably had less. Um, Yeah, I think it was probably 10. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so there just isn't you, you want them to. And if I had an application with a ton of extra letters in it, I would simply um, put the letter, I would make sure that the two teacher letters were at the at the uh, top, and then I would take one of the extra letters and put it after that, and I would read, I would read the three. So I wasn't even necessarily seeing the one that they probably most wanted me to see. And so if you want them to really consider everything in your application, you need to be more judicious about, about what you include uh, in it. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, the rare, rare exception, and, and you and I talked about this a little bit, was, you know, was, if I was at Lehigh, for example, and Lehigh Akoka was sort of this legendary alum who had given millions of dollars and was, you know, the CEO of Chrysler and Ford for, for years in the 70s and 80s. And, um, you know, if you got a letter from Lehigh Akoka, that might catch your eye, and, and that might be one you take a closer look at. But, but beyond sort of those really, you know, kind of out of the ordinary exceptional letters, I think for the most part, they are excessive. And, and, and as you said, unless it really points something out, different that that the teachers haven't already spoken about or or your counselor hasn't spoken about, I would really limit those. 
Yeah, agreed. And, uh, you know, we were joking about the letter. I used to get letters sometimes like, hey, you know, I went to Penn and my next door neighbor is a great kid and she just made yeah. a great fit there. Like, great. I, <laughs> I think you're right. That's adding, right? Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, Jason, thank you so much. I think uh, we tackled a couple of the things that myths that are going to keep cropping up. We're going to keep having these conversations, but um, hopefully our listeners are going to go out and spread the word and, and make it less likely that we're going to have to have this at least one more time uh, with with a student. So I really appreciate you joining us today. Sounds great, Beth. Thanks for having me. Happy to be on anytime. All right, wonderful. Then um, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to discuss the talk. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, uh, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We are about to talk about the talk and no, the talk is not the talk you're thinking about, I don't think, anyway. Um, but instead, we're talking about having a conversation as a family about what is reasonable and affordable. Uh, and sometimes I think this can be as difficult as the birds and the bees talk for some people. Um, and joining me today to cover this is Beth Feinberg Keenan, who's a former financial aid officer at Northeastern, my colleague here at College Coach, and someone who frequently talks to parents who are struggling with this question of kind of how to tell their kids what they can afford for college. So um, welcome, Beth. Thanks, Beth. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Uh, so I think my first question uh, for you is, you know, when do you have the talk? What is the right time to start talking about financial fit for college with our kids? 
I think that, you know, having conversations with families, I always encourage them to start this conversation early uh, with, mm-hmm. their, with their kids. And it might be some type of trigger. Maybe they're going to be going on a college visit uh, with their students or, you know, their students are starting to talk about colleges. So I think that that's a great starting point, especially if it's not a blank check. But it's also something that they have to think about in terms of it's an ongoing conversation, something that they want their students to be aware of and reinforcing that financial fit. And I think specifically that it's really, for many families, it's a a deciding factor in where the student can, you know, where the student can go to college. Mm So, you know, I think that, you know, the earlier they start and the more they reinforce it, that it's going to... I guess really lessen any blows that there's really any surprises once the acceptances start coming in. Because many times I'm having, you know, talks with families and they're saying, you know, they're getting accepted, you know, to colleges and, you know, we can't afford this. What do we do? Mm -hmm. Or same thing, like I remember when I was at Northeastern, I would have families come into my office and be like, you know, we don't have any money left or we don't have enough money to cover this. What should we do? And it was like a shock to the student. And, right. you know, the student saying, well, why did you even let me apply there if, you know, if we can't afford it? So, you know, making sure that your students are on the same page and, you know, making sure that it's not, you know, a surprise in their senior year when all of a sudden they're getting these acceptances because it's a very emotional time, not only for the student, but really for the entire family as they're going through this process and getting those acceptance letters. Yeah, and I mean, I will have to say... Um, I I love my parents dearly, um, and but you know they weren't perfect. They didn't do everything correctly. But I will say one thing that I think they did really well was I knew from a very young age that part of my college selection process was going to be up around what they could afford. And by the mm-hmm. time we were looking at colleges and I was deciding where to apply, they had so hammered that message into me that I, you know. When they would bring it up, I'd be like, I know, in that way only teenagers can do, and rolling my eyes at the same time. Right. But. Exactly, exactly. I did know. And, um, you know, I had a big challenge in paying for college in that I I did something that I now know was not um, a great choice in that I applied early decision. We didn't truly understand. We understood what we were agreeing to. I don't think we understood the financial impact of applying early decision that we would lose the opportunity to compare financial aid packages. We just... We just didn't totally understand that piece. Luckily for me at the time, you you could get out of the early commitment, but go into the regular decision applicant pool. And so instead of being completely cut loose from the school, which is what happens now if you can't mm-hmm. accept the early decision for financial re- reasons, we had the opportunity to go into the regular pool. So then I did get some financial aid offers from other colleges. There was an opportunity to do a little negotiating. And I ultimately did end up at my early decision school. Um, but as it was very painful to not be able to accept that offer, but I never, I knew that that was a possibility and I, and I think it made it less painful. I don't know. I'm thinking back to when I, I was, I think I was 17 or 18 in that moment. And I guess I was 17, almost 18 and it was hard. It was very hard. So one of the things I had down here to ask you was, um, you know, what do you think about letting your kids apply to colleges that they might not be able to afford without financial aid? And it sounds like maybe 
that's not, you're thinking that's not a good idea, but let me ask you that. I mean, what do you think about letting your kids apply um, to schools that you might not be able to afford? So I think, again, tied to that emotional piece that you were really talking about, Beth, too, because you're like, you know, this is really where I want to go to school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for some students, it's just a matter of just really just knowing that they can get into that school. I mean, I had that conversation with a family actually yesterday on the phone that um, this young, this daughter had applied to actually NYU um, early decision and parents are older parents, uh, 59 and 60 years of age, and you know, they're like, okay, we're not going to qualify for much in terms of need-based financial assistance, but she knows that, you know, we can't necessarily pay for this school without um, some type of financial assistance, and it's just a matter of that piece for her, like for our daughter to say Mm -hmm. that, you know what, she's gotten in. And if she doesn't Mm -hmm. get in, she's not holding that against us as parents and saying that, you know what, I never got to, I never got to see if I could get in because you wouldn't let me apply there. Mm. So I don't necessarily say, like, don't encourage your student to apply to their dream school, but they also, you also want to make sure that you're advocating that they have a well-balanced list of colleges. Um, right. Some financially safe schools on their list. Um, maybe that's even the local community college um, where they can get their core requirements completed and maybe then you could go on to your dream school because what's really the end goal? The end goal is that you're going to get maybe a bachelor's degree, um, or for some students, it might be that they want a graduate or professional degree, but it's those stepping stones to be able to get to their goal, and I think that that's one of the things that I think because this is such an emotional decision that students often lose sight of. All they think of is, hey, I really want to go to this school, Mm -hmm. and... That's all they, they can't see beyond that. They're teenagers. I mean, as you, as you said, you know, you back to when you went through this process. Mm-hmm. And just like you, Beth, I was going to say, I, you know, I didn't apply early decision, but I was able to go to my dream school too. And yep. it was also due to financial fit because they offered my family the most amount of money. But you know what? My family also said to me, you know what? You need to have some schools closer to home uh, because you're looking to go to school on the West Coast and that's going to be an expense for us too. And so I did. I applied to a local, you know, a few local schools around the area. But in the end of the day, they allowed me to apply to my dream school and it all ended up, you know, it all ended up at the end of the day working out. And, right. you know, I don't know how it would have been any different, you know, if I, you know, if I didn't get in or if they, you know, didn't get enough money um, to go there. Yeah, I mean, it is it is probably somewhat easier for you and I to sit here and talk about this just from the perspective that we were able to go to our dream schools. Interestingly enough, though, finances played a big role for both of us in mm-hmm. those decisions. Right. Um, so, I mean, it does lead to the next question, which is um, both of our alma maters had pretty big sticker prices. So, you know, colleges publish a sticker price. That doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the price that every family is going to pay. So are there tools that we can use with students or that parents can use with students to get a better idea of college affordability? And, you know, because sometimes if part of the point I think of having the talk is to be everyone to be realistic and understand what is possible. And then if you know what's possible, then you can go at this process with a number in your head or a general idea in your head. And instead of just kind of hoping for the best, 
you can do some actual research and maybe you will find good news at the end, right? As both of us did. Um, so right. what are some tools that families can use uh, with that in mind? Well, well, the first thing that I think families should do is, is they should, you know, take a look at what that cost of attendance is and what really makes up that cost of attendance. Because when families see that sticker price, that's inclusive of direct costs and indirect costs. So I always have families, you know, break down what does that sticker price mean? What of that price is tuition and fees? It means your student could be living on campus, so you're going to have room and board. But then schools also build in indirect expenses, which are still related to education. Books, supplies, personal expenses, transportation. So there's other things that maybe families are going to be able to, be able to pull out and bring that cost down even further and say, okay, well, that's a little bit more palatable. But then above and beyond that, every school has a tool on their website called a net price calculator. And this calculator is a tool where families can put in information about their income and assets. Some of these net price calculators are more robust than others. Uh, They might ask for students' GPA. They might ask for students' standardized test scores, possibly class rank. And those net price calculators are giving families additional information not only on need-based financial assistance, but also maybe scholarships. So Mm -hmm. if families are getting more information, doing their due diligence and research, they're able to figure out, okay, you know what? Based upon our income and our assets or based upon the student's profile, um, we might get a $10,000 discount. Maybe we'll get a $15,000 discount, whatever that discount is. And then they can compare that net price to their resources. How close is that net price to the resources they have to cover their student's education? Right. What about, this one I think is a little tricky, and I want to bring it up now. Um, I have a couple of other things that I'm hoping we can cover, but what about parents? And we do see this too, and parents out there, I, I hear you, and, and maybe this is something, you know, finances are things that make people very uncomfortable sometimes. Not all people, but some people. And parents are not always comfortable sharing with their students or with their children how much they make, how much they've saved. You know, sometimes there's a whole thing around they haven't saved and they don't want their student to know that. Um, and, but so if they're not comfortable sharing their information, how do they have this conversation with their kids and, and what kinds of things would you recommend saying if they're not comfortable disclosing exact figures? So if families aren't comfortable disclosing exact figures, I really don't think that this is, you know, a door to say, okay, well, we're going to close that door and we're not going to have that conversation because it's still important to have that conversation and that talk with your students and make sure that they're aware of your resources. You don't have to share your net worth with them. They don't need to know how much you make. Uh, They don't need to even know how much you have in total assets. But it's important to share with them if you have saved for college or for those families who haven't saved for college, what are you able to contribute or... Um, What are you willing to contribute uh, for their education? But this is also for families who haven't potentially saved. This is a really good opportunity where they can start discussing student debt and family debt because Mm -hmm. student loans and parent loans might be a way that 
they're going to be covering what's not covered by financial aid. And for many students, this is the first time that they're going to be taking on any type of substantial debt into their own signatures. Parents might, you know, have some debt. If they have houses, they could have a mortgage, you know, car loans. And some families also have, you know, credit debt, credit card debt that they're paying down or paying off um, at that time that their students are applying to college to maybe even free up some resources. Um, so I don't think that they have to have an, you know, basically open book, but I think that they should, you know, explore all avenues and talk about, you know, what are those different pots, what are those different, you know, pools of money that they're mm-hmm. going to be able to use, whether it's college savings, maybe disposable income to say, you know what, we're really in or we're able to put $200 a month, $500 a month, whatever that is, and then we expect you to borrow and we're also willing to borrow, but what's realistic for the, what's realistic for you as a student and what's realistic for us as a family. Right. And I think my parents, um, and like I said, I think they did a good job with this piece and it's something I plan to emulate. They did a really good job of figuring out what was reasonable, what could they afford. And then they did expect me to also contribute. So they had figures for what they wanted me to um, contribute, but they never shared what their salaries were with me or, and it really wasn't my place to ask, you know? So what I think they did really well was say, this is the number that we can do. And this is how much we think you can do. And they asked me to earn at the time. This is a long time ago because I'm old. Um, I had to earn $2,000 every summer, um, which was occasionally harder than I thought it would be because, you know, if you're not making that much money and then you want to have any fun at all, it's tough to amass that kind of money. But um, so I had numbers. We, We had numbers and those numbers didn't, you know, they never said, well, we've saved this much and this is how much we have coming in. Like you say, they didn't open the books up, but they were honest about what they thought was a number they could afford. And I think that's the key right there. And of course, it forces you to make that decision as well, right? And and so not all parents want to talk about this. And then, of course, if you're divorced, that makes it even trickier. But the more you can narrow in on or zero in on what can you afford, it makes the rest of the process um, a little easier. Last question for you is... Um, I know that because I hear it from from you and from our other colleagues who are talking to families about financial uh, decisions related to college is that we hear parents saying, well, um, my kids are they're just going to borrow to go to school. And um, that's how they are planning to make up for what we can't afford and what it actually cost. And what are your thoughts about about this and suggestions that you might have to help parents help their kids understand what it really means to take on $100,000 in loan by the time you graduate and things like that? Well, the first thing that I often you know set straight for the family is, is that there's only a limited amount of money that students can borrow. So whether it's the parent saying that the student's going to cover the shortfall or the students, the 17-year-old student or the 18-year-old student saying, if you're not going to pay for it, we'll just borrow. Right. Students can only borrow $27,000 for their entire undergraduate education over those four years. Like, that's all they can borrow. That's the cap. Anything above and beyond that, is going to be a cosign loan. So if the family is saying, sure, we'll cosign with you, then 
it's opened up like another whole can of worms because, yep. you know, families have to understand, you know, you're equally responsible paying back that loan. But in terms of tools, because, as I mentioned earlier, this is the first time that students are taking on that type of debt, is having them run like a student loan calculator out there. Um, Bankrate is a good website that has student loan calculators, um, mapping your future. There's a number of different um, websites out there where you can run a student loan calculator to get an idea of what you're going to be expected to pay upon graduation. We run this calculation. I was going to say, I know it off the top of my head. A student who borrows <laughs> the $27,000 over four years, if it's with accrued interest, that loan is likely to be about $30,000 when the student graduates. So the student should plan on today, based on today's current interest rates of about 4.5%, then their monthly payment is going to be in the three, low $300 range for 10 years. Yep. So then taking it one step further, if they're taking on additional debt, what is the loan payment going to look like? What do they expect their starting salary to look like? And if they expect their starting salary to be 50000 $60,000, are they going to live in an apartment? What do they think rents are going to go for in the area? Do they need a car? Are they going to take public transportation? They have to eat. And as you said, Beth, they want to have fun too. Right. So the decisions they make when they're taking on these student loans can impact future decisions that they have in the, you know, that they have in the, in the future. Mm-hmm. So, those are those are tools that they can use and things that they can do together with their student. Looking at what are rents in, in certain areas, if they're going to school in an urban area and they want to stay in that urban area, the Boston area, the New York area, the San Francisco area. Um, and what do they think their car payments are? And that's somewhere that families can share with them of like kind of like, you know, budgeting and starting to really instill that early on. And it might have students second guess it saying, wait, I have to pay $500 back a month, $600 back a month. Mm, I don't necessarily know if that's, you know, something I can afford to do. I want to put that into my budget. Right, right. And it, it is hard to really process that as a teenager. But if you're having those conversations earlier, and I, I love all of those suggestions, um, and, and maybe having those conversations before there's a dream school, before there is an acceptance in hand, because it's a lot easier to process with a clear head what these trade-offs are going to be than if you are processing them while your dream school is being is dangling right there in front of you, and all you need to do to get it is to say, "Sure, that's fine. I'll deal with it later." Right? So, you know, right. the earlier, I, I think, the probably if people take away no other piece of advice from this segment than this one, your suggestion that have the co- the conversation, have the talk sooner than later, have it early in the process. Um, I do think that that is um, that is the key to everything. Have it early, but also have it often. So you can't, unlike with the birds and the bees, where maybe you have it and then everyone says, "Whew, done." Now we don't have to cover that one again. Well, unfortunately, it's something that you are gonna gonna need to keep talking about. So, Beth, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Beth. It's been great. All right. Well, we're going to be back in a couple of minutes and we're talking about colleges that change lives, um, which who doesn't want to learn about colleges that change lives? So uh, we'll be back in just a minute. Don't go away.
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Um, before we get into our third segment, I won't know if you guys are aware, but we are actually being sponsored by Audible. And I mean, how cool is that? Um, we've been doing this podcast for a while, and we have this wonderful sponsor. And I love Audible. I don't know if you guys are using Audible or have ever used it, but um, it's such a cool service where you can get audiobooks. Um, you get one free every month. Um, but I love it because I am traveling quite a bit and I don't always like to read in the car because actually I get sick. Um, and sometimes I even get sick on the train. So what's great about Audible is that I can listen. Uh, and I have actually asked my son for Christmas this year if he would get me an Audible book. I'm particularly interested in Educated, which is a memoir um, by Tara Westover about her experiences growing up um, kind of off the grid and then finding um, education. I don't know. I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. And the other thing that I love about Audible is their, the speed control. I read really quickly and I can get frustrated if something is going too slowly. So it allows me to speed it up slightly um, so I can get through a book um, much more quickly than maybe I could if just I was listening to it at the regular speed. So I think that's really cool. Um, but also very cool for all of you is that right now for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month, which is more than half off the regular price. Um, so just by listening to the show, you're going to get this great deal. Um, and uh, you can choose one audiobook and two Audible originals absolutely free. Um, so to learn more, visit audible.com slash college coach or text college coach to 500-500. So again, it's audible.com slash college coach or text college coach to 500-500. Um, so 
check it out. All right. I am interested and intrigued to tell our listeners about colleges that change lives. I mean, I'm in the education business. I think college changes lives, um, but I'm not sure if you all were aware. We have done a couple of segments in the past about this, but I think it's something that we should be talking about frequently, that there's a group of colleges called Colleges That Change Lives. And here to talk to us about that today is my colleague, who's also a former admissions officer at Reed College, Abigail Anderson. Hi, Abigail. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, And why don't we start with what are colleges that change lives? Well, I totally agree with you. I think all colleges change lives. Like that's the point of education. That's why we're in this field. But there is actually a nonprofit organization called Colleges That Change Lives. So that would be all capital letters. CTCL is their acronym. Um, And they are a group of 45 colleges all across the country who have come together for a variety of reasons that I think we can get into. But long story short, and I think we run into this a lot in our field, Beth, um, Mm -hmm. sometimes we think that college is, or people come to us thinking you have to have straight A's to get into college or that college is only for a certain type of student usually a really successful type of student. Um, And the colleges that changed lives basically came together and said, no, college is really for everyone, and it's about finding the right school. Even C students, B students, D students can go to college, um, but you have to find the right school for them. So at their core, that's what the colleges that changed lives group is all about. And and why... In your opinion, what do you see as, um, you know, why a college would want to be in part of this group, um, colleges that change lives? And my assumption is you don't just decide, oh, we're going to be a college that changes lives, that there's more to it than that. And you have to apply to join the group and that there are some expectations of those colleges. So, you know, what's your take on why a college would want to be in CTCL? So Reed, where I worked, was actually always a part of the Colleges That Change Lives group. So I had the opportunity to travel with CTCL, um, which was a phenomenal experience for me. And no, you're right, Beth. You can't just be in the Colleges That Change Lives group. It is kind of a, a selective group. Um, the, the group was actually started really as a book that was written by... Um, a retired New York Times education editor and journalist named Lauren Pope. Um, And it started off, I think, in 1996 um, with a small group of schools that he kind of hand-selected as schools he felt were groundbreaking, which um, were schools that families might not have heard of. So he was really looking beyond status and prestige and rankings. Um, there actually isn't a lot of information about how the schools are picked. The book was reproduced, or re, a new edition was put out in around 2012 when I was working at Reed, and I actually organized the new editor's visit to Reed, and we weren't really allowed to know what was going into selecting the new schools. But mm. I can definitely say that one of the pieces that goes in is thinking about... Um, 
outcomes and the return on investment and, you know, where did these students start in high school um, in terms of success and where did they end up? And one of the things that Lauren Pope and the new editors and the colleges that Change Lives nonprofit is really proud of is that most of, I think, all of the schools on the list um, outproduce in some ways Ivy's, the big research schools, the big 10 in producing like per capita scholars and scientists. Um, mm-hmm. So you can't just choose to be in the group. They, they profiled 40. Now we're up to 45. Um, and I think part of like the major benefit of being a part of that group is the recognition of the work that the school is doing in educating this, their students. So maybe, you know, Reed was saying, we don't always start with the top students, but we end up producing, and I know this to be true about Reed, they ended up producing more PhDs in physics per capita than any other, like, than any other um, liberal arts school in the nation and all but, like, three or four other schools, which were, like, MIP and Caltech. So mm-hmm. um, we got a lot more press for being part of Colleges That Change Lives. We really got to demonstrate our mission and commitment to education as being part of this group. And as I alluded to, we also traveled together um, as a group. And so that was another big benefit. Um, So if a student knew about Reed but was at a College That Change Lives event, they might learn about Beloit and Evergreen and Antioch and the other schools in the group. Got it. And yeah, so some similar to the way that sometimes the highly selective schools travel together, smaller liberal arts colleges travel together, colleges that change lives travel together, which makes a lot of sense. If you're willing and open to considering one of these schools, the likelihood is high that you will find some of these other options similarly pretty interesting. Um, and that's, you know, I don't, I don't think I fully understood the... Um, that it that it was kind of a selection process that there was a group out there looking and evaluating and I, I should have known that because I know that's how it started um, so it certainly makes sense that that's the way in which it would continue. Um, what kinds of students do you typically recommend for these schools? Well, if you just look at the group of schools and I'm actually on the colleges that change lives website right now, I'm looking at the schools and I, I look at them and I go, wow, these are really interesting schools. There are smaller schools. Um, they are schools that are definitely, like I said, you look at them and you go, oh, I know great people who went to these schools. I know successful people who went to these schools. But there are also schools with lower uh, admission standards. They're, they're less selective than many of the schools we spend a lot of time hearing about on the news or reading about um, or getting, you know, fielding questions from families about. So they are definitely going to be more um, fitting for students with lower grades in high school, but they have to be students who love learning, who want to be in a really academic setting. These, these schools are very academic, um, and they do also need to be students who are comfortable with a smaller school or perhaps, in some cases, um, a more rural school. One thing that gets me really excited about CTCL is they do a, they're really cognizant of thinking about schools all over the country as well. So these aren't just schools on the West Coast or East School, East, East Coast, excuse me. Um, mm-hmm. There are, the, the vast majority of the schools on this list are in um, the Midwest 
and the Southwest. And then, of course, there are schools in all, you know, Northwest, New England, et cetera. But you, ha- you also have to be a student who's open to studying outside of kind of the, the major coastal educational uh, right. enclaves that we see. And, and you're right, necessarily being right near a big city, things like that. Um, I, I think, you know, if you want to go to a school with a big football team and, and things like that, you're probably not going to be looking at colleges that change lives. But if that's not really your thing, they really are um, really worthwhile and, and worth checking out. Um, as, as we wrap up, you mentioned you were on the Colleges That Change Lives website. Can you give us that address so if families are interested, they can go check it out? Yeah, it's super easy. It's ctcl.org. Yep, that is super easy. ctcl.org. Abigail, thanks so much for joining us and, and sharing more about Colleges That Change Lives. I appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. All right, next week, Ian is hosting, and we are going to be talking about the College Board's new landscape tool, a.k.a. the Adversity Score. They really just kind of renamed it. Um, we're also going to be covering... How to not break the bank over winter break. If you're trying to afford college, this is really important. Um, And we're going to talk through the supplements for Virginia Tech and Santa Clara. So if you're working on those applications, we're going to have some information for you there. Um, I'm on Instagram. I am... I haven't posted in a couple of days, but I'm going to get some more up there. So follow me at Elizabeth Heaton 92. Follow College Coach at College Coach BH. We're also on Facebook. Um, if you are interested in learning more about something that we've covered on the show and we talk about our archives, but they're not searchable on the Voice America site, but we blog about every podcast. So if you go to our blog, blog.getintocollege.com, you can search there for topics Um, that are of interest to you and it will also let you know which podcasts and on which dates we have covered those topics so check that out and don't forget we are here every Thursday 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific Thank you for tuning in to Getting In a College Coach Conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.